From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. And thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hiya to those tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, and hey there to everyone streaming us live on the YouTube channel Strange Planet. And of course, hi there to those who assemble in the YouTube live chat every week, however and wherever you're listening. I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Preston Dennett, longtime UFO and paranormal researcher, is here from Southern California to discuss some of the 50 never-before-published alien contact cases in his new book, On Board UFO Encounters. If you haven't subscribed to my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, just go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca to register. Inner Sanctum contains my monthly brief, a This Month in Conspiracy History feature, a book club, a spotlight on a previous guest, and much more. Again, subscribe to Inner Sanctum today. To register, go to strangeplanet.ca. What really happens when someone is taken on board an alien craft? Well, the answer may surprise you. You're about to hear some remarkable and disturbing accounts which provide an extensive exploration deep into the heart of the UFO phenomenon and show just how fascinating and strange UFO contact can be. A wide variety of ETs are represented, including greys, praying mantis, human-looking ETs, hybrids, humanoids of all types, ordinary people, each who have had the extraordinary experience of being taken aboard a UFO. Preston Dennett began investigating UFOs and the paranormal in 1986 when he discovered that his family, friends, and co-workers were having dramatic, unexplained encounters. And since then, he's interviewed hundreds of witnesses and investigated a wide variety of paranormal phenomena. He's a field investigator for the Mutual UFO Network, a ghost hunter, a paranormal researcher, and the author of more than 13 books and more than 100 articles on UFOs and the paranormal. His articles have appeared in numerous magazines, including Fate, Atlantis Rising, MUFON, UFO Journal, Nexus, Paranormal Magazine, UFO Magazine, Mysteries Magazine, Ufologist, and others. His writing has been translated into several different languages, and he's appeared on numerous radio and television programs, including Coast to Coast AM, just last night with yours truly. And additionally, additionally, Preston has taught classes on various paranormal subjects and lectures across the United States. Preston Dennett, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? I'm well. Have you rested up and recovered from last night? <laughs> I have, yeah. That was a remarkable, I mean, we had, a, a I thought, a, a, a wonderful discussion. Uh, but the, the callers towards the tail end of the program, very emotional. How did you feel about some of those calls? Oh, it, you know, it breaks my heart. I really, my heart goes out to them. I, this is something I deal with, you know, pretty regularly, uh, hearing people struggle with this. It's a real phenomena. I know that 
people who don't have these encounters regularly, it kind of just brush them off. Skeptics, I'm like, you've got to start taking this seriously. Uh, whenever there's a real skeptic, I challenge them to ask everyone they, they know, have they had a UFO encounter? I think they'll be really surprised because a lot of people are dealing with this. Well, it hit home for me, Preston, because unlike you, I'm not an investigator. I interview people like you. I interview, so I'm getting it, you know, third, second, third hand. So for me to hear, I mean, that that raw emotion was palpable. I, for people who didn't hear, there was one, case, one caller in particular, Daniel from Arkansas, uh, who called in and began to recount his his memory of what sounded like an abduction, sounded like his experience aboard some sort of a craft he described in, in pretty good detail. Uh, and then he just broke down. And and uh, for me, that's when it hit home. I mean, th- th- these are just not case studies in a book. These are human beings. These are damaged people. And, and as you say, you, you know, I have to admit, you know, in some of these cases, I'm on the fence. Well, are these people fantasizing? Uh, did Are they misremembering? Uh, are they confusing a dream? But when you hear something like that, I tell you, it makes it makes you really stop and think that there might be something really going on here. You do, you don't fake that. Uh, and let, I mean, that, if if he was faking it, and I don't believe he was, that's an Oscar uh, winning performance. He was. He's damaged. Oh, you know, this is something I, yeah. There are, when I start dealing with a person who's having these experiences, it's often a, a series of phone calls, uh, Skype interviews, hopefully, you know, face-to-face if I can. And uh, we work through it, um, for sure. You can tell. I mean, uh, it's not at all unusual for people to break down crying. There's a lot of emotions wrapped up in this. They don't have anyone to talk to. They're being rejected officially by society um they're afraid to tell their closest loved ones because these are the ones they love closest they don't want to be rejected by them so it's often the very closest people to them that they're are the last to hear right and it's not just the the people directly involved as you say it's the family members we had another call from a woman again very emotional I, I just felt I wanted to reach through the phone and, and give her a hug. She was talking about her brother who served at Camp Pendleton. And Camp Pendleton comes up time and again in in these alien abduction cases, as you'll tell us throughout this hour. But her, her brother came back from first he was in Camp Pendleton. He had some sort of a breakdown. They threatened to throw him in the in the uh, in the brig. Uh, they, they gave him an option to go to Vietnam. I guess he came back from a tour of duty, went back to Pendleton. She didn't see him for an extended period of time. One night he shows up in the middle of the night in her bedroom, uh, sobbing uncontrollably. And, and she just, she held him for hours and hours and hours. He's, he's still alive, but she says he's never been the same. Something happened, UFO related, uh, but he's never spoken about it. Um, what can you tell us about what you heard in that call? What what stood out for you? Uh, yeah, well, I'm really disappointed with how Melter is handling this. Uh, Camp Pension, as you mentioned, is one of the cases in the book. Uh, and it's really been implicated in a number of other cases. And here's a caller coming in saying, well, this happened to me too. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, this is terrible. 
Uh, I, I'm very disappointed with how our own government has been dealing with this, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I think we're dealing with you know, a real situation here that needs to be remedied. And uh, shouldn't be someone like me, a bookkeeper from Reseda, you know, trying to deal with this. But, hey, here I am doing the best I can. Yeah, you're doing a great job. But let's talk about that case in the book, Onboard UFO Encounters, that centers around Camp Pendleton. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting case. This young boy by the name of Ramon, well, that's a pseudonym. Uh, it was, let's see, 1953. He's about four or five years old and is with his friends, a couple of his cousins. This is in San Fernando, California, right at the base of Hanson Dam, actually. They see this UFO. It's got portholes. There's ETs looking out at them, waving at them, and darned if this object doesn't land right at the base of Hanson Dam. So, of course, these six, seven kids take pick up their bikes, bike up to it, and f- completely freak out. They realize this is something very unusual, uh, all except for Ramon. And he actually walks up to this thing, climbs on top of it, you know, finds a porthole or a doorway and goes inside has missing time and a couple of hours later you know he's set free or let go uh very disoriented uh his is a real complex case so i'm going to shorten this up a little bit but over the next fewer week here he had a repeat of this experience he would wake up in the middle of the night and we pulled out of his house right through the closed door, down through the living room, and to the base of Hanson Dam where there was this UFO that had landed again. And he's taken on board. And after it happened like three or four, five maybe times, he started to really remember what happened. Uh, He remembered being placed in a chair. He saw a view screen. There were stars moving around. He remembered being examined. It was very painful. He saw grays. Uh, He couldn't describe them too well. He said they were very scary to look at. And this is how it kind of all started. Now, following this, he had experiences on a pretty much ongoing basis. All up through his teenage years, he would have abductions. Pretty much always the same thing, him being examined. It was never really a pleasant thing for him. And uh, at age 17, you know, he's having a hard time. He's getting involved in gangs and uh, in a bad neighborhood. He's got to change his life, so he decides to join the Marines. He's 17 years old. He's not really of age yet. He gets a waiver from his parents, and boom, he finds himself stationed at Camp Pendleton. Now, Camp Pendleton has a UFO history. I'll just put it that way. One story that comes to mind is from Leonard Stringfield. Uh, who interviewed a crash, a soldier who was involved in a crash retrieval incident, who was taken from that area to photograph a crashed UFO. So they've got a lot of UFO history. So here he is stationed, you know, he's 17 years old. He's suddenly got a crypto clearance, top secret. He's sitting in his office and two higher ranking officers, one was a corporal, I forget what the other one was, a captain, start talking about crashed UFOs, alien bodies. And he's thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what's going on here? They shouldn't be talking so loudly. I shouldn't be hearing this. Later, he realized it was all just a setup because next thing he knows, 
he's volunteered against his will, <laughs> quote, <laughs> to do this project for the, quote, betterment of our country. And he finds himself, you know, there's a lot of shady stuff going on here. There was a, he was really manipulated. He doesn't remember everything that happened. He was, his father told him, don't volunteer for any special projects. Next thing he knows, boom, he's involved in one. And he's being, he's on this bus. This is what he remembers. He's on this bus with blacked out windows, curtains. Only thing he can see is out front. And they go for three, four hours from Camp Pendleton through desert area, through, it must have been five to ten blockades or uh, security clearance areas. Right. Uh, So it was very clearly a high-level area where they were going to. And they had a lot of trouble getting into it. And finally, they get there. There is a warehouse, a hangar. And they're taken into, and there's this sergeant, the one that had originally kind of convinced them into taking this, quote, special project for the betterment of the United States. And he says, okay. And there's a group of 20 Marines here. They're all kind of sat down. One by one, they're all taken to a chair, given a blood test, injected with some drug gone through some sort of uh, mind control experiment, it appears. Uh, They were told, don't be afraid. Something's going to happen. We're right here with you. Don't break rank. And uh, one by one, they were all put back in rank, including Ramon. And out, they showed this crashed UFO. They opened the hangar doors, and there was this not crashed UFO. It was actually perfect shape. Ramon said it was exactly the type of UFO he had seen as a child, except it wasn't shiny like he remembered. It was kind of a dull matte silver. And then out marches these, you know, the sergeant makes a signal and marches out these reptilian humanoids. Not just one, a group of them. Uh, and they were very large. Immediately, all the Marines broke rank. Ramon didn't. He stood firm. And one of these reptilian humanoids marches right up to him, seven feet tall, maybe eight, twice as wide, very muscular, extremely threatening. And, you know, this is when Ramon actually did break down. He was, he had a real hard time describing this. And he said, well, what did they look like? He says, you know, honestly, Preston, I can't tell you for sure because it was very hard for me to look at them. And he said, you know, I do remember scaly skin. I do remember snake-like eyes, and it was just very threatening and extremely muscular and, you know, seven or eight feet tall. And he and he's breaking down as he's telling you this? He's crying? Yes. Yeah, it was very difficult for him. Uh, so we did a couple of interviews on this, but you can only push a person so far. You yes, know exactly. Uh, so I don't want to, you know, I, I really hate to invade people's lives and, you know, their privacy and cause further damage. Uh, so I have to be very careful. And was he in an underground base when he, I mean, what was no. the connection between the military and these reptilians? They were working with them? Yeah, this was very curious. This is something I did ask. And I'm like, well, who was, who was in charge? Because I was you know, wondering about this. I mean, who's being, has our military been co-opted by reptilian aliens? That was my concern. And uh, he pretty much addressed it. He said, we know they did not seem to be ordered around at all. 
uh, nor were the, you know, it seemed pretty equal. They seemed like partners. So, and what was the purpose of, of sh- sh- uh, showing themselves, revealing themselves to these Camp Pendleton soldiers? What was the point of all that? Uh, apparently to test their reaction, to see how they would handle it. And uh, they did not handle it well. Ramon did. But, you know, like we see in these cases, immediately after something like this happens, they're often shipped off to some foreign country. Ramon was shipped off to Vietnam. This is exactly what the other caller, you know, last night said. I'm like, wow, here we go again. This is a technique. This is exactly what happened to Sergeant Charles Moody after he had an abduction in New Mexico. Shipped him off. Seen it in a lot of other cases. Maybe they're hoping that they, they'll they'll be killed over there and they won't have to deal with them anymore. Yes, I think so. Or won't have to deal with the publicity. And yeah, they do sometimes are, you know, go missing or are killed or we don't know. Uh, yet Ramon, he suffered a serious injury, as did the caller's brother, by the way. Yes. Uh, which I'm like, oh, great. You know, another coincidence, you know, in quotes. And Ramon was shipped back, and he start, continued to have encounters. He remembered he was put into food service. He did not want to deal on the front line anymore. He was injured, so he was able to do that. Uh, but he would work very late at night, 3, 4 a.m., and kept seeing this one guy that was very peculiar looking with very strange eyes. And one day, another guy looked just like him. They showed up. They looked like twins. He walks up to them. And saw the back of their neck. And he said, darned if they didn't look like uh, premature hornets. You could see right through their skin. The blood flowing and just, it wasn't human. And their eyes were very strange. Uh, He has a lot of memory problems with what's happened to him at that, you know, short period in the military. He got out as soon as he could. Uh, but and, yeah. and and how did he carry on after that? Did he hold a steady job? Did he have a family? What what has become of him? Uh, he's now seventy three years old, still dealing with it. You know, has kids, grandkids, who are continuing to have sightings. Uh, he got a job as a welder. He worked very hard in human rights. A really great guy was able to you know raise very low paid workers their wages uh, significantly. This, uh, this is something I see with a lot of experiencers. They're very good people. And, uh, and is, does he continue to have abduction experiences with the Greys? Um, well, yes and no. He had one major abduction, uh, but mostly it's just these very close-up sightings, Greys inside his house. Uh, he had a divorce due to the Greys, kept appearing. His first wife couldn't handle it and just said, you know, I'm sorry I love you, but I have to leave you. This, I just can't deal with this. Uh, and what is the connection between the reptilians that he saw at Camp Pendleton and the Greys, if any? It's a great question. I don't know. What I do see is that people who have encounters have encounters with multiple types of ETs. Is, he, is he also being monitored by, I don't know, a Majestic 12, Men in Black, anything like that? I would say, I mean, I feel like that's true. I can't confirm that. I do feel like, you know, most UFO researchers are probably monitored and high-profile abductees. By the way, I was interviewing him, Ramon, one day, and he called me back after the interview. He says, you know, while we were talking on the phone, 
my son was observing a UFO out, outside his bedroom window. He said it landed in the street. Oh, my. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, he's not the only former military person who is featured in onboard UFO encounters. Fifteen never-before-published cases, uh, close contact with extraterrestrials. We're going to take a, t- a time out here. When we come back, We'll talk about an Air Force officer who works for special forces and uh, this individual's experience again with the gray aliens. Preston Dennett, my guest, back with more in a moment right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Preston Dennett, my guest, on board UFO Encounters. There are a number of military people, obviously, uh, in, in the book that have had uh, abduction experiences. Not all, though. Have you come any closer to figuring out why certain people are abducted and others are not? How are they selected, do you think? Uh, well, I've certainly looked into it. I, I can only speculate. It's pretty evenly divided between men and women. I see no patterns in terms of race, religion, uh, geographic location. The only pattern I did notice uh, is profession. People who are outside late at night, that seems to increase your chances. Police officers, things like that, truck drivers. Uh, And in terms of, you know, extensive contact, yeah, I have noticed one loose pattern, uh, but I can't really confirm it too Well, but it's people who are doing good work for humanity in some capacity. What I'm seeing is a lot of social workers, teachers, doctors, you know, police officers, inventors, uh, this sort of thing. But I'm just not committed to it quite yet because, no, it's pretty random. I do see that it does follow families. So that's certainly a very pattern. It's generational. So if you're speaking... So in the case of, let's say, Ramon, for, uh, was, were, are his children also abductees? Was Ramon's father or mother an abductee? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Though the, you know, his children or grandchildren haven't reported this, but they've reported close-up UFO sightings. And when something's within 200 feet of you, you know, a couple hundred feet, that's a red flag. And uh, his grandmother took him out one day after following a couple of abductions his grandmother lived up in fresno and he would stay with her to, you know to escape the hardship of the city life as a young teenager uh, he had abductions there and following one of these he t- she took him out to a wilderness area and darned if these ufos didn't start landing <laughs> and she's like telling him you know th- these are things you're going to have to deal with throughout your life uh, so apparently yeah she, this is something she knows about and has been dealing with. She took a spiritual viewpoint towards it uh, and thought it was, you know, something religious, which, you know, something he himself has adopted. So, that must be so horrible for someone who's an abductee that has children to know that it, what, what, what happened to them or is happening to them will likely also happen to their children. And there's nothing, well, there doesn't seem to be a lot they can do about it. Yeah, turns up in most of the cases, too. Uh, All right. 
Uh, so let's talk about this Air Force officer who works for Special Forces. Uh, and I say works. So this person is still with Special Forces? Uh, no, not at this point. She's retired. Uh, she's had a lot of uh, health problems due to what happened, as you know, I'll tell you. Yeah, it's really quite an incredible case. Uh, and I believe she was born around 1950, mid-1950s. This is a very young girl. You know, this is in Florida. Uh, really, from the, her parents had had a number of sightings. Uh, and uh, when she was a very young girl, strange things started happening. She would disappear. They could not find her in the house, and she, they'd find her in a closet in another room. Once they found her two miles away outside the house, it was a real problem. And as she became a young girl, she started having visitations in her bedroom by gray type ETs. Uh, her father was in the military, very high place with NASA, uh, an architect, and uh, pretty influential within his capacity. And uh, from, an, like, I think it was age 13, 14, D Dolly is her name. She's gone public. She's letting her real name be used. She's ready to go forward with this. Uh, she had a very dramatic sighting uh, at her home in Florida. This is near the Florida Everglades. Uh, there was confirmation of it in the newspaper the next day. She saw a number of UFOs. One dropped down out of the sky. It was right behind her house. Suddenly, it's, she realizes it's looking at her, sends a beam of light, and she's extremely frightened. She turns to run. Her whole room fills with light. Next thing she knows, it's the next morning. So this is how it all kind of started for her. Uh, her father, you know, trained her in a lot of science areas. She's uh, trained in martial arts. She's a very intelligent woman, very uh, accomplished, and uh, got involved in the military and became employed by the Army Department of Defense, can drive pretty much any vehicle, and was employed for you know driving very special cargo. And let's see, I believe it was in uh, 2008, She's worked, working at Fort Benning and is on her way to work, uh, not feeling well. You know, she's having a lot of trouble at home and uh, sees this UFO following her. It's very large. It's completely silent. She's familiar with aircraft. She knows pretty soon this is something unusual, especially when it comes zooming towards her car and basically buzzes it. You know, it's like 200 feet over her car, makes a U-turn right stops there in front of her the, her car, in front of her windshield, and sends her a telepathic message. That's very strong. She, she hears it, you know, very strong. It says something is bad at home. And she was confused by the message because she doesn't know what home really means. Is that earth? You know, is that her own home? Uh, so she's pretty confused by it. Um, so she goes home. Goes to sleep, has a powerful dream of this incident, and uh, this time her husband's name is attached. Her ex-husband, I'll just say. And so she started watching him very carefully, because at this point he was acting very aloof, very strange. And, you know, I brought home Chinese food. She became very sick, had to be rushed to the hospital, and uh, was diagnosed with food poisoning. Well, a couple of days later... She had a heart attack, or what appeared to be a heart attack, and uh, 
she, as she's watching her husband very closely at this point and finally goes to the doctor because she's continuing to have illness. And he tells her that she has been poisoned with antifreeze. By and, her husband. Yes. So long story short, she got a warning from this UFO that her husband uh, was basically a secret sociopath and was poisoning her. Oh, turned out he, Yeah, it turned out he was. He has a history of this. It was a real problem. Uh, she didn't know. Uh, it was a messy separation. And it's one of several incidents where you know she's been basically rescued by these what you know friendly UFOs. It's her son, is what she finally realized. It's her hybrid son, full grown. She met him face to face a couple of years later. He's a gray? He's a gray, half gray. Yeah, it was 2012. She wakes up, you know, she's thirsty. She goes downstairs. You know, she had just broken her elbow or her arm uh, and was, you know, somewhat incapacitated and had gone to get some milk, some juice. And see, walks into the kitchen and sees this gray hybrid, you know, adult. And she's like, wow, I'm fully conscious. I can't believe you're there. Who are you? And this gray uh, male says, you know me. Don't you recognize me? She says, no, I don't. He says, yes, you know me. I'm your son. And she's completely freaking out. You know, her heart is like pounding out of her chest because this this is a fully conscious encounter. It's just not something you expect. And uh, she looks at him, and sure enough, she can see he's part human. And darned if he doesn't have some family resemblance. And he goes on to you know, give her some messages. A couple of cases just like this. Uh, one's much more extensive, actually. Uh, she just got a few messages. He told her that we're watching you. You know, There's a lot of us looking out for you. We were worried about... Uh, your arm, are you okay? And she says, yes. How old are you? And he says, I'm about 25, as you would think of it. But really, I'm much older because I live in a different time stream, or he used a different term. Uh, Was he communicating telepathically or in, in spoken English? Telepathically, mm. yeah, which is generally what happens. Not always. In Ramon's case, he says they spoke out loud, often to him. Uh, or at least that's how he perceived it. Why? Maybe it's the um, a result of this being a hybrid, so having some humanity uh, there. But often we hear the grays being described as just emotionless and clinical and kind of cruel. And yet then we have these cases where the grays are very empathetic, sympathetic, kind. Right. Yeah, I've got about three. You know, there's 15 cases in the book. And I thought, hey, you know, this is a good opportunity because I kind of brought these cases together based on the uh, qualification that these are people who have been taken on board. And that was really the only qualification I looked for when putting these cases together. And I thought, okay, well, how many have had positive experiences? How negative? You know, what's going on here? Uh, about two or three have had, you know, what I would call pretty unfriendly you know, not fun, horrendous, even horrific abductions. They don't like it. And right on the other spectrum, there's about five that are really positive. And the rest in between have sort of a mixture of positive and negative. Most feel they're dealing with ETs as we think of them in the classic sense. 
But I have to tell you, not all of them. One thinks perhaps these guys are demons, demonic. One thinks, you know, I think they could very well be angelic. Another guy says, you know, I don't think they're ETs at all, honestly. He says, I think they wear different masks. This is an intelligence that takes on different forms. Um, I don't buy it that they're aliens at all. All right, uh, Preston, we'll uh, take a time out, come back, and uh, continue to delve into uh, some of these remarkable cases never before published on board UFO Encounters with Preston Dennett. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay right where you are. We'll also open up the phone lines and take questions and comments right here on The Conspiracy Show. Exploring Theories uncovering facts and offering a different view of the universe this is the conspiracy show with richard sarrett preston dennett stays with us on board ufo encounters i wanted to ask you about the the the, uh, the case in the book dealing with a canadian entertainer who uh took a road trip across the Canadian Rocky Mountains and it resulted in an incredible UFO encounter. First, let me ask you, is this a well-known entertainer and, and have they allowed themselves to be identified publicly? Uh, no, I always wanted him to, I mean, he allowed his real name to be used, James Santiago, uh, but he performed under a pseudonym and yeah, he was wildly popular. He won't let me talk about it. <laughs> There's a number of reasons. He has some family issues. Uh, oh, so in other words, if we heard the, his stage name, we would recognize him immediately. I couldn't say that. Ah, okay. No, no I could not say that. But he was well-known in the field that he entertained in. All right. And uh, so he taking, he's taking a trip across the Rockies. Yeah, this is a crazy story. I got to know this gentleman very well. He became a very good friend until his death uh you know not too long ago of prostate cancer god bless him great guy very funny really knew how to tell a story and often as he talked about this yeah i could see his eyes well up with tears he became very excited uh it's a story he's told many times it was 1982 uh he had just finished a series of shows in calgary and uh had to go to vancouver to do another show and it turned out his makeup artist had a mother who was ex- an extremely famous and wealthy artist and was going to go to Calgary and try convinced him to basically take a road trip. Now, James is like, no, I'm not going on any road trip. I, I always fly. He's very high class. Uh, you know, I saw him on TV, actually. He became very well known as a makeup artist in the movie industry later on. Uh, and uh, finally just decided to take this road trip with this woman who was elderly, very famous artist, extremely eccentric. And they're like 10 miles out, 20 miles out from Calgary when she says, you know what? Uh, do you have any change on you? Any copper? And he's like, yeah, I have copper. You know, I've got some pennies. She's like, get rid of it because aliens use copper to follow me. I'm being followed by UFOs. So he pulls out his change, gives it away to some kid, and it's like, oh, great. You know, now I'm stuck with this crazy lady who's being followed by UFOs. And she's like, hey, believe me or not, you'll see. And 
Long story short, they're in the middle of the Rockies there, Canadian Rockies. And she says, do you feel it? Do you feel the pressure? And he says, the no. The pressure? Yeah, the hmm. pressure. She says, he says, no. What are you talking about? You know, she had talked a lot. She was a, turned out she was a really neat lady, knew all about Atlantis and all these occult subjects. Uh, he had had a ghost sighting as a child, saw his mother after he di- she died. So was really, you know, warming up to her. And she turns to him and says, do you feel the pressure? And he's like, no, what, what the heck are you talking about? Great, here's this crazy lady again. And she says, it's a UFO, it's coming, you'll feel it soon. And sure enough, he felt it. And this is something I've heard from many witnesses, I have to tell you, Richard. Uh, this is something they use to paralyze people. It's a pressure that basically paralyzes you as they approach closer. Uh, this is kind of my assessment of what's going on here. Because as they're driving along, and this is you know right in the middle of the Rockies, uh, this pressure mounts and gets stronger and stronger. And he's like, I can feel it. Oh, my God, I can feel it. He's like, he's like what is that? And he says, she says, that's them. Hold on, they're coming. And shortly after that, this craft shows up. He said it was this beautiful emerald green. It was the most beautiful thing he's ever seen. It came right over the car, 20 feet, 30 uh, held on to it, tracked them like a had a governor on their car. Uh, he said he had this real incredible expansion of awareness, almost like a mini enlightenment. He said it was very hard to describe, but he was more aware than he's ever been. Had a number of people tell me the same exact thing in different words. Uh, he said it was a great experience. He was just thrilled, but she wasn't. She was very scared and pressed on the accelerator and is screeching through the mountain roads here, freaking him out. And she says, pull open the glove compartment, empty it out, there's a secret compartment. Press the button on the bottom of the glove compartment. He's like, great, you know, this is very strange. This lady is freaking me out. Uh, but does what she says, empties the glove compartment out. And I tell you, this is a strange story, but it's what it is. And... Uh, presses the secret button and out pops this compartment and he pulls out this thing wrapped in velvet. She she says, unwrap it. And he unwraps it and it's this giant gold bracelet. He says it's huge. It couldn't possibly be worn by a woman. It's much too heavy. It's covered with sea foam green uh, precious stones or semi-precious stones. Clearly a priceless artifact. And she says, put it between us, hold on to it. And this will drive the UFO away. Uh, <laughs> his senses are kind of overwhelmed at this point, And he just does what she says. And they continue driving. And eventually this UFO does leave. And she says, okay, you know, it's gone. You can put this thing away. And he's like, well, what is it? I mean, where'd you get this thing? And she was hesitant to tell him, but he was pretty stubborn. And she finally said, well, you know, When I was a very young woman, I was scuba diving off the coast of Spain when I heard a voice in my head that guided me to it underwater. And I pulled this thing out, and the voice told her it was from Atlantis. So 
There oh, you my word. <laughs> it's stranger and stranger. Unbelievable. All right, uh, Preston, another time out um, is uh, nigh. So we'll come back and uh, perhaps time to discuss a, another story or two. We'll also open the phone lines. Questions, comments, maybe even share uh, an alien abduction experience. Preston Dennett, author of On Board UFO Encounters, stays with us. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. A few moments remain with Preston Dennett, author of On Board UFO Encounters. Uh, Preston, before we run out of time, and I forget to ask, how do we get a copy of this book? Uh, you can just pick it up on Amazon.com, or if you go to my website, uh, you can click on that and order it through my website. I've got excerpts there. You can also contact me through my website. If they order it through the website, can they get an autographed copy? Uh, yeah, if they actually email me, I'm happy to do that. All right, give us the website. I've linked up to it uh, at uh, Strange Planet slash uh, strangeplanet.ca slash conspiracy show but uh you, you if you can give us the uh, the the uh, the web address yeah sure probably the easiest way is just to google my name preston dennett it should take you right there the actual address is preston dennett dot weebly dot com and uh yeah you can definitely uh get a book with an autograph just let me know all right so uh these are not always greys that are behind these abductions. Sometimes they are, as you call them, friendly, human-looking E.T. Such was the case uh, with a young boy who was uh, taken for, uh, on board and uh, went for a bit of a joyride. Tell me about it. Yeah, there was a couple of cases like this, actually. The one that really leaps out for me is Ron from New Kensington, Pennsylvania. This is June 1965. He's like 13 years old. He's out there skateboarding with his friends, as he usually does, you know, on a summer evening. It's around uh, 7 o'clock. His friends are supposed to be home by 9. He's allowed to stay out till 10. And they, you know, we're just out there right behind his house when this UFO shows up. It's a classic saucer, metallic. It's got, uh, it's pretty big. It's got a red light on the bottom, kind of reminded Ron of a, red reflector on a bicycle and suddenly this window appears this sort of porthole and they can see two figures human looking and ron thinks to himself oh gosh you know take me for a ride i really want to go up there with you uh and boom next thing he knows he's facing the other direction this ufo is still up in the sky they're waving goodbye to him he's waving goodbye feels a real poignant sorrow his friends are facing the other direction they appear to be not moving and this ufo darts away he turns to his friends he says can you believe that we just saw a ufo did you see those guys that were inside it and his friends say what ufo <laughs> we didn't see anything what are you talking about you're crazy and this really upset him and he started to argue with him when one of, suddenly they realized it was 10 o'clock. Three hours had passed. Uh, so they're like, oh, my God, you know, we're in trouble. We've got to get home right now. And so they all divide. They go home. 
Ron goes home and tells his mom, he says, I saw a UFO. She's like, really? He says, yeah, honest to God, you know, there are people. I don't know what happened. Suddenly it's 10. It's very strange. She's like, wow, you know, that's amazing. Are you all right? And, you know, she was very supportive. Uh, next morning, he gets up, runs over to his friend's house. They still don't remember. They're grounded. Neither of them remember anything. They think he's crazy. He goes back home. You know, he's devastated because he's like starting to second guess himself at this point and tells his mom, he's like, you know, I don't know what happened. You know, maybe I imagined everything. And she's like, no, look at the newspaper. Turned out there was a sighting that evening. Several people in his neighborhood saw this. Uh, apparently, he was the only one who saw these humanoids. And so that really gave him, you know, a boost of uh, confidence. But what's really interesting is, you know, he had missing time. However, over the next week, two weeks, a month, he started to remember stuff. Uh, just popped into his mind, flashbacks. Uh, this is something, you know, that happens with people who have dealt with child abuse, perhaps, or war, war trauma victims. These flashbacks do occur. Uh, and this is what we're seeing in a lot of UFO cases. So he had these flashbacks of what happened and remembered a lot of what happened. Perhaps not everything, but what he does recall is he's sitting here, you know, sees the UFO, waving at this thing, and boom, he's on board. He's sitting between two adults. He's on a very low bench, rounded walls, very clean, and he sees two beautiful human beings in jumpsuits uh, looking at him. They're very friendly. He says they seem almost perfect, almost angelic. Uh, he's got a religious viewpoint towards this. He feels like they might be angels, uh, something to do with you know, religion, certainly, and God. Uh, but they said he said he stood up, walked over to them. They took him to a view screen, showed him this sort of field of stars. It's another thing I hear pretty frequently. They take people to a view screen and show them a field of stars. <laughs> Not sure what it means. Uh, and it didn't go much beyond that. He feels like, yeah, there's not, you know, there's some stuff he doesn't remember. But next thing he knows, he's back on the ground. Was this a one-off or did it happen again? This was a one-off. He did have other sightings, some close-up, and his children and relatives had some very close-up sightings. Uh, but so far, his is the most extensive. Uh, and yeah, that was it. These um, human-looking ETs, any, any sense of where they're from? Are they? I, I say that because, uh, and one of the callers last night mentioned this, the possibility that they might be time travelers. They might be us in the future. This is a, a hypothesis that's been put forward by, I believe, is a professor of anthropology out west. His name is Michael P. Masters, and he wrote a book called Identified Flying Objects. He believes there's a there's a distinct possibility the the pilots of these crafts are our our uh, uh, I guess our ancestors in the future coming back. Yeah, wouldn't that be something else? Our children, basically. Yeah, right, our uh, descendants, not our ancestors, our descendants, yes. Right, so um, it's not, a, it's a theory I'm not, you know, ready to rule out, certainly, because there are a number of cases that speak directly to that. People have been told by the ETs uh, that we are you, you are us, you know, one day you will look like us. 
or directly, yeah, we are from your future. It's not a lot of cases, though. And, you know, if I were to march through this just sea of cases and look for people who've had information about where these ETs are from, what you see are very coy, evasive answers. Uh, you know, I've got a number of these firsthand. Someone asked, where are you from? They said, it's not important. Another, you wouldn't understand. Uh, it's from a place you don't know about yet. Uh, and, you know, things like this. Uh, there's one case in the book, by the way, uh, Anne Witherspoon, she allowed her real name to be used. She had a fully conscious encounter, and, and they said, it finally came one day and explained everything. They're like, this is why we contacted you. We've been following your genetic line for thousands of years, you know, since biblical times. They said they were from a twin star system, not a binary, a twin. They showed her little symbols that described their planet uh, and uh, told her a bunch of stuff. Hmm. Remarkable. Uh, we are sadly out of time, Preston, but you're always full value, always appreciate spending time with us, and um, I, I encourage people to go out and get a copy of Onboard UFO Encounters. Again, they can order it through the website, and uh, just uh, Google Preston Dennett, Preston, P-R-E-S-T-O-N, Dennett, D-E-N-N-E-T-T. You can also go to strangeplanet.ca slash conspiracy show and just click on Preston's name there on the page. It'll take you right to the website and you can uh, reach out to him by email from the website, order an autographed copy, and uh, he'll uh, he'll send that out to you. Onboard UFO Encounters, 15 never-before-published case studies. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you again, Preston. Great talking to you. Hey, always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, that's it for me. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you can be along for the ride. My thanks to Carlos Cagini and Ryan White for their assistance as always. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in the light and what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home or at least up the stairs. Good night.